0: There is no avoiding the fact that sacrificial giving is treated as an indicator of spiritual vitality and authentic faith in the Bible. That is why this story is being recorded. These people gave much because they had been forgiven much. And whether you are reading the Old Testament or the New Testament, that's what forgiven people do. Welcome to Into the Word with
1: Paul Carter. I'm your host Woody Woodland. People who have been forgiven much typically give much. We see that truth on display in both the Old and New Testaments. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul
0: Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Exodus chapter thirty-eight. As I've mentioned before, chapters 35 to 39 in the book of Exodus generally receive very brief treatment in most commentaries. And the reason for that is that these chapters, by and large, repeat material that has already been covered in chapters 25 through 31. In chapters 25 to 31, you get the instructions about how to build and manufacture all these items. And then in chapters 35 to 39, you get the record of their actual construction. The reason that these chapters are covered at all is to show that the incident of the golden calf and the gross apostasy and idolatry associated with that event did not, in fact, forestall God's stated intentions to dwell in the midst of his people. These chapters are in the Bible because mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, of course, that's a phrase from the book of James in the New Testament, but it serves as a decent summary of these events as well. Douglas Moo, in his commentary on that verse in James 2.13, says helpfully here, While setting forth a strict standard, conformity to his holy law, as the basis of judgment, God is ultimately a God of mercy who also provides in his grace a means of, of escaping that judgment, closed quote. That is as true in the Old Testament as it is in the new. Thanks be to God. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse one. He made the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood. Five cubits was its length, and five cubits its breadth. It was square, and three cubits was its height. He made horns for it on its four corners. Its horns were of one piece with it, and he overlaid it with bronze. And he made all the utensils of the altar, the pots, the shovels, the basins, the forks, and the firepans. He made all its utensils of bronze, and he made for the altar a grating, a network of bronze, under its ledge, extending halfway down. He cast four rings on the four corners of the bronze grating as holders for the poles. He made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with bronze. And he put the poles through the rings on the sides of the altar to carry it with them. He made it hollow with boards. These verses correspond with the instructions given in chapter 27, verses 1 to 8. You will recall that items that were for use inside the holy place and the most holy place were overlaid with gold, whereas items that were intended for use within the outer court were overlaid in bronze, as here. The altar of burnt offering, or as it is sometimes called, the bronze altar, was in the very center of the outer court. It was where the ritual sacrifices were grilled. The altar was hollow, meaning that below the bronze grating, There was an empty space that was likely filled with earth and rocks, as per the instructions in Exodus 20, verse 24. We pick up the story in verse 8. He made the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. This of course corresponds precisely to the instructions given in Exodus chapter 30 verses 17 to 21. Here though we have this interesting additional detail. Moses tells us that the bronze for the basin came from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. In the ancient world mirrors were generally made of the highest quality of polished bronze and In fact, it is not surprising that there would be an abundance of these items in the camp of the Hebrews, given that it was in Egypt, actually, that these items were generally produced. If you owned a mirror in the ancient world, it was almost certainly made in Egypt. And we recall that God told the Hebrews to go to their Egyptian neighbors and their masters and their mistresses and to ask for parting gifts, reparations, as it were that the Egyptians were only too happy to give if it would speed the departure of these people who so enjoyed the favor of Almighty God. So we have a bunch of highly polished handheld bronze mirrors that were donated for the manufacture of the bronze altar. And the result then was that the bronze altar would have been constructed out of the very highest quality of bronze available at that time. And of course, that's appropriate. The bronze altar was the most important item in the outer court. So Moses is telling us that it was made with the highest quality of available materials. Now, of course, we're also very curious about the identity of these women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. Who are they and what did they do? We assume that they are the women who became the women who ministered in the entrance of the Tent of Meeting, the Tent of Meeting itself not yet having been constructed. That's what's going on here. We remember that the Tent of Meeting was a sort of proto-tabernacle, but we understand here that these were the women who ministered in the tabernacle, likely as a result of this expression of piety in making these precious items available. So who were they? Hebrew scholar Nahum Sarnas is helpfully here, Nothing is known about this class, which is otherwise mentioned only in 1 Samuel 2, verse 22. The Hebrew idiom, tsevo tseva, is also used of the Levites and means qualified to serve in the workforce. So that it is likely that these women performed menial work. None of the evidence supports the notion that they exercised any ritual or cultic function. The idea here is that even these women at the bottom of the occupational and social scale displayed unselfish generosity and sacrificial devotion in donating their valuable bronze mirrors, closed quote. Scholars generally understand these women as being essentially the maids of the tabernacle complex. That's what they became. They would have done the cleanup work and also the laundry of those who were serving as priests within the complex. The point of mentioning them is to highlight their piety, not their ritual function. The point is that even the tabernacle maids donated their most precious items, the bronze mirrors. They were given by their former Egyptian mistresses. This is the Old Testament version of the widow's mite story, and it should be appreciated on that basis. Hey, Pastor
1: Paul, I want to dig a little deeper on that if we can. I I love the idea that this story is sort of the Old Testament version of the widow's mite story. I've never really thought of it that way before, but I like it. And that reminds me that a couple of weeks ago, you referenced the story of the widow's might. You basically said that generous giving is a way of responding to the mercy and the grace of God. He has given us everything. He has given us mercy, forgiveness of sins, a new heart, the Holy Spirit, a bright and certain future, a new and forever family. He has given us everything, including the power to make wealth. And so as an act of humility and faith, we return a portion of what he has given to us as a symbol, as as a token of our gratitude. That's what you said. So then you went on to say that while giving is one of the normal ways in which we respond to the grace of God, some people can't give much. Because they don't have much. And you referenced the story of the widow's mite. So since you referenced that story again here in this episode, I thought it might be helpful if you walked us through it, since we may have people listening today who aren't that familiar with it.
0: Yeah, sure. The story of the widow's mite is told in the 12th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, verses 41 to 44. Now, it's a true story as opposed to a parable, right? Sometimes Jesus would invent little stories or illustrations about farmers or families or whatnot. But this is an actual story. This is something Jesus observed and then remarked upon for the benefit of his disciples. So Mark tells the story this way. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. So the basic idea here is that God takes our giving seriously. He reads our hearts by observing our level of sacrifice. And the issue really isn't how much we give, it's actually how much we keep. That's the punchline of the story. Jesus says, they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So they all kept back a great deal for themselves, even though they gave much larger amounts than she did. But the widow put in all she had to live on. She didn't reserve anything for herself. She was 100% all in with the Lord.
1: Now, the point isn't, though, that people should give 100% of what
0: they make to the church, is it? Or I'm really hoping not, or else I'm in big trouble. No. As always, Jesus is a good teacher, and he is focusing the attention of the disciples on upon an important principle. And the principle is that our giving, maybe more than anything else we do as people, tells the truth about the level of our trust and commitment to the Lord. So obviously we want to avoid insensitive absoluteness in our application. The point is pretty straightforward. When you give sacrificially, you are saying two things loud and clear to God. You're saying, first of all, that you trust him. Because he's going to have to replace what you just put in the offering plate. And then secondly, you're saying that you love and treasure him supremely because you're making the decision not to spend this money on yourself. Rather, you're spending it on God. Money tells the truth. That's the point, right? Lips can lie, and they often do. But how we spend our money shines a light on what is going on inside our hearts, for good or ill.
1: Mm, Yeah, that's good. But bring it down to street level for people. It seems to me that the idea here is that no matter how rich or poor you are, you are capable of giving a gift to the Lord that
0: says something true and meaningful
1: about your love and loyalty to God. Is that right?
0: Yeah. In the Old Testament story here in, in Exodus 38 that we started with, the tabernacle maids gave to God. The only really valuable thing that they had was the mirrors that they were given by their former Egyptian mistresses. That was incredibly meaningful to God. And the widow in Mark 12, she put in all that she had, which was really just a couple of dollars in, in our term. But because of what it revealed about her heart, it was, again, incredibly valuable to the Lord. That's the idea here. God reads our givings, not in terms of total dollars, but in terms of what it reveals about the secrets and priorities of our hearts. And so the application, obviously, is what does your giving, what does my giving communicate to God about my loves, your loves, your priorities, my priorities? When he reads my budget and when he reviews my giving receipts, what does that say about the things that matter most to me? Does my giving make it clear that I trust the Lord And I love the Lord with all my heart. Or does it reveal that actually I am self-indulgent, fearful, and self-reliant? That's the issue.
1: Yeah, I mean, that is all really helpful and convicting. uh, A great way of thinking about that. All right, thanks for taking the time to walk us through that. Let's jump back into the
0: text now at verse 9. And he made the court. For the south side, the hangings of the court were of fine twined linen, a hundred cubits their 20 pillars and their 20 bases were of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. And for the north side, there were hangings of a 100 cubits, their 20 pillars and their 20 bases were of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. And for the west side were hangings of 50 cubits, their 10 pillars and their 10 bases The hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver, and for the front to the east, fifty cubits. The hangings for one side of the gate were fifteen cubits, with their three pillars and three bases. And so for the other side, on both sides of the gate of the court were hangings of fifteen cubits, with their three pillars and their three bases. All the hangings around the court were of fine twined linen and the bases for the pillars were of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. The overlaying of their capitals were also of silver, and all the pillars of the court were filleted with silver, and the screen for the gate of the court was embroidered with needlework in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It was twenty cubits long, and five cubits high in its breadth, corresponding to the hangings of the court. And their pillars were four in number. Their four bases were of bronze, their hooks of silver, and the overlaying of their capitals and their fillets of silver. And all the pegs for the tabernacle and for the court all around were of bronze. This section corresponds to the instructions given in chapter 27, verses 9 to 19. The enclosure of the compound was made precisely in accordance with the instructions that God had given to Moses. That is the main emphasis here. In verses 21 to 31, we have a precise record of the metals that were actually donated. This record was taken by the Levites under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. These are the records of the tabernacle the tabernacle of the testimony, as they were recorded at the commandment of Moses, the responsibility of the Levites under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron the priest. Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord commanded Moses. And with him was Oholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. An engraver, and designer, and embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine-twined linen. All the gold that was used for the work in all the construction of the sanctuary, the gold from the offering, was twenty-nine talents and seven hundred and thirty shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. The silver from those of the congregation who were recorded was a hundred talents, and 1,775 shekels, by the shekel of the sanctuary. A beka a head, that is half a shekel, by the shekel of the sanctuary. For everyone who was listed in the records, from 20 years old and upward, for 603,550 men. The hundred talents of silver were for casting the bases of the sanctuary and the bases of the veil a hundred bases for the hundred talents, a talent, a base. And of the 1,775 shekels, he made hooks for the pillars, and overlaid their capitals, and made fillets for them. The bronze that was offered was 70 talents and 2,400 shekels. With it, he made the bases for the entrance of the tent of meeting, the bronze altar, and the bronze grating for it, and all the utensils of the altar, the bases around the court, and the bases of the gate of the court, all the pegs of the tabernacle, and all the pegs around the court. Modern-day readers are understandably confused by all these ancient weights and measurements. The commentaries are helpful here if you want to get a sense of precisely how much metal we're talking about. Scholars generally agree that a talent was about 34 kilograms or 75 pounds in weight. Thus, when you run the math, it appears as though a grand total of about 2,193 pounds of gold was assembled for the project. We're not entirely sure what the precise weight of a sanctuary shekel was. The term sanctuary shekel obviously refers to the measurement standard of the sanctuary, but as to what it precisely equated to, no one is willing to say for sure. We can guess because we have recovered some beka coins and they weigh about six grams. And the text says that a beka was half a shekel. So it would seem that a sanctuary shekel was about 12 grams. But it is always hard to know how much degradation there has been and how much filing any coin that we recover has endured. So with the lesser measurements, there is a bit of guesswork. Regardless of the precise weight of some of these smaller measurements, the overall impression here is of immense sacrifice and commendable generosity. There is no avoiding the fact that sacrificial giving is treated as an indicator of spiritual vitality and authentic faith in the Bible. That is why this story is being recorded. These people gave much because they had been forgiven much. And whether you are reading the Old Testament or the New Testament, that's what forgiven people do. Thanks be to God.
1: Well, amen. Pastor Paul, I want to come back to something said at the very end of the program audio. You said these people gave much because they had been forgiven much. And whether you're reading the Old Testament or the New Testament, that's what saved people do. When I heard you say that, it it reminded me of the story of Jesus and the woman who was anointing his feet with her tears in the house of Simon the Pharisee. Did your mind go there too? Because it seems like that's a kind of a parallel scene, at least to me anyway.
0: Yeah, it's definitely parallel. Uh, The story you're talking about, of course, comes from Luke 7. In Luke 7, Jesus is having dinner at Simon the Pharisee's house. And the Bible says that a sinful woman came and began to wash his feet with her hair and to anoint his feet with expensive perfume. Now, Simon, Simon the Pharisee, he's offended by that. He's scandalized. And so Jesus tells him a little story. And, And this is one of those made up stories, one of those teaching illustrations that I mentioned before. Good teachers in those days would often make up little stories that illustrated deeper truths and no one was better at that than Jesus. So he said to Simon, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, which would in our terms be about a year and a half worth of, of wages for a laborer. So one owed 500 denarii. The other 50, when they could not pay, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. And therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Quote. So there Jesus is saying that the one who is forgiven much, loves much. But the twist is that he implies that the reason simon loved little is because simon believed that he had very little that needed forgiving and that's the point how we respond to god tells the truth about what we believe about ourselves if we think much of ourselves and very little of our sins then we will be cool and withholding in our worship But if we think much of God, and if we understand the heights and the depths of our sin and the overwhelming, inexhaustible riches of the cross of Jesus Christ, then we will be generous in our giving and fervent in our worship and lavish in our praise because the one who has been forgiven much loves much. So Old Testament and New, the Bible seems to be saying that God reads our responses so as to assess our affections because the one tells the truth about the other
1: Mm. oh wow there is a lot for us to be thinking about there thanks for that as always friends if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul you can find that over at the Into the Word website at IntoTheWord.ca or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play and don't forget to tune in to Life 100.3 next Sunday morning for the next chapter in our journey together through the whole counsel of God we'll see you then
0: your word